Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, we're going to be talking about the third most famous Dane in history after Hamlet and Scooby-Doo, Soren Kierkegaard. I'm joined by Claire Carlyle, who's the author of a new book, Philosopher of the Heart, The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard. Claire, welcome. Now, to most of us, Kierkegaard is someone who maybe we've encountered at undergraduate level in a you know, Penguin Classics edition of Fear and Trembling, and that's about as far as we go. Is that the sort of heart of his his work? I mean, it's a big question to ask you to sum up straight away, but, you know, what's the nub of why Kierkegaard's important? Well, he's often seen as um, the first existentialist philosopher or the father of existentialism, but... As the title of my book suggests, he was called by his contemporaries the philosopher of the heart. And what that means is that he really directed his philosophical attention to the inner life of human beings, the human condition as lived from the inside. And that's really that focus on on the heart and on the experience of, of being human is what is very distinctive about him, and it's the reason why his writings have touched so many people. I mean, they've been translated into all sorts of different languages. And that focus on the human condition and the experience of anxiety and despair and hope and all the other aspects of of being human has fed into the existential tradition, but it's also done more than that, particularly in the way he is a great critic of of religion, but also he's he's still exploring human spirituality. Yes, well, I was, I was going to say that, you know, surely the one big break between him and the existentialists is that they were generally how you navigate in a godless world, weren't yes, they? And he's yes. quite the opposite. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Kirchhoff was 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 baptised a Lutheran. Like most Danes in the 19th century, he was just brought up as a Christian. And so he did his thinking within that tradition. He was very, um, he always questioned the Christian tradition that he was a part of. And actually, at the end of his life, he launched an, an outright attack on the church. But he never left the church. So he was a kind of critical voice within it. And rather than saying that we need to leave religion behind like some other some of the 20th century existentialists did he was trying to think about how human beings could be could live a live a truer kind of spirituality rather than just conforming to institutional religion so in that sense he is he well he's a religious thinker yes i mean it doesn't yeah. make sense to think of him as a theologian rather yes. than a philosopher well i think he is a philosopher he's also a theologian he's also a religious thinker a religious writer a literary writer it's quite difficult to pin Kierkegaard down for these reasons and in a way that's something that's very it's one of the reasons why he's a great thinker that he he's difficult to categorize and he 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 has as much to say to atheist philosophy as he does to say christian theology so that's one of the things that's very important and interesting about him and to sketch the sort of break he made at least immediately when when he was starting to write hegel was was sort of everywhere, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he was a trendy philosopher at the time. He was a trendy philosopher, yeah. And, you know, how did Kierkegaard kind of kick against Hegel and also in a way before before him kind of Kant? Mm. Well, I mean, in a way, that's a long long story, but the feature of Hegel's philosophy that Kierkegaard really disliked was its aspiration to build a system of human knowledge, a very ambitious aim to really try and comprehend the whole of world history as as, as well as metaphysics using human reason. So Hegel had a great confidence in human reason to to make progress in not just scientific understanding, but also in, in religious understanding. And so he was part 
of the whole Enlightenment project, which was to to really elevate human reason and to have reason be the highest authority on all sorts of political, social, moral questions. And the thing that Kierkegaard reacted against was precisely that aim to to systematise our knowledge. And Kierkegaard is an, is an anti-systematic thinker because he thinks that human experience doesn't fit neatly into a rational system. Um, so when we're thinking about the human heart, it's, it's much more of an, an emotional experience. And so he thinks that, that to translate the human being into sort of rational concepts is to miss out something crucial, which is, well, it's difficult to say what it is in a way. And that's that's part of his point is that there's a lot that can't be expressed and that can't be articulated and that can't be argued about being human. But actually those those things can be the most profound and most important parts of human life. And, and a rational system can miss out. Um, well, there's also a point, point you make in the book that it's very much struck me that you said, so, you know, the sort of Hegelian idea that, you know, you can generalise across yes. history and yes. you can yes. talk about yeah. it or generalise across people and yeah. come up with a theory of history, yes. if you like, if yes. that makes sense. Yes. That Kant said, you know, the important stuff is happening life life by life. You know, mm. you have to... Mm. I mean, he's very strongly individuating people, wasn't he? He is, yes. I mean, he's sometimes criticised for being too individualistic. Um, but I think his thought was really that individuals have to really know themselves most of all and he was uh, influenced by Socrates in this respect. Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher, told people that they should understand themselves and they should they should try to to inquire firsthand into the experience of being human and the question about what it is to be human. And Kierkegaard took that Socratic injunction very seriously and so he thought that in a sense that the attempt of Hegel and his followers to produce an encyclopedic understanding of world history, of, 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 of nature, of societies, was in a sense a distraction from this more fundamental project of, of self-knowledge, which is really an ethical task. It's, it's really the task of figuring out how to live. Each of us is, we're born, we're brought up in a certain society, and part of the process of growing up and becoming adults is to figure out who we are and how to live. So it's that first-person task of understanding ourselves or maybe maybe realising the extent to which we don't fully understand ourselves. Um, that's primary for Kierkegaard. But I think he did, he did think that that project was al- always bound up with our relationships with other people. It's not an individualism that isolates people from each other. It's rather that, in fact, Kierkegaard thought that our, our human relationships, our relationships with our, our, our parents, our children our spouses or friends that these were really some of the most essential parts of being human so that's drawn into the philosophy of the heart that he's putting forward it's not about separating people from each other but you i mean you express very well in the book how he sort of almost zings back and forth particularly as a young man between this idea of being involved in the world yes, and an almost yes. monastic retreat yes, from it into interiority. Yes. yes, yeah, that's definitely a big theme of the book is that that question about how to be in the world. And that is a question that Kierkegaard inherits from the Christian tradition that he's born into because that tradition, I mean, he was a Protestant uh, thinker, as I said before, he was a Lutheran. And one of the big shifts that happened in the Reformation was a move from seeing monasticism as the highest form of religious life to seeing marriage and the family as the, the way in which you live a life and, and, and relate 
relate to God through in that more worldly way. And Luther himself exemplified that by leaving a monastery and getting married. And so, you know, it's a big difference between the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches that in Protestantism the clergy can marry, you know, so that's that's a that's a big shift. And in a way Kierkegaard's still grappling with that question because what monasticism and marriage represent for him are two different ways of being in the world so the monastic possibility is really about retreating from the world withdrawing from the world renouncing the world in order to focus on the relationship to God whereas marriage represents a different kind of religious life which involves being in the world and, and, and living a relationship to God through your worldly role as a as a parent, as a as a professional, um, as a member of society. So these were these that the, the fundamental question I argue in the book is is this question about how to be in the world. And interestingly, Kierkegaard rejected both of these possibilities. Um, he he thought that he he did have to be in the world. He thought that I mean he couldn't be a monk because there were no monasteries in Copenhagen in the nineteenth century. <laughs> but his version of monasticism was leaving the city and retreating to a quiet place in the countryside, ceasing to be a writer because being a writer kept him in the public eye. So it wasn't a literal monasticism that he was tempted by, but it was still a kind of withdrawal from the world. But he felt that his vocation actually required him to be in the world, to be a writer, um, even though he found that quite difficult. And, you know, famously, he he did plan to get married, but then he broke off the engagement. So, So he's, you know, he's almost like the opposite of Luther in that Luther managed to be both a monk and a married married man, although not at the same time, whereas for Kierkegaard, neither possibility seemed really one that he could embrace, but he was still kind of dealing with this question about what his relationship well, we in the world should talk be. talk maybe about this, you know, his own heart and this, you know, he was he was one of history's worst fiancés. Yes, you know. <laughs> yes, he's famous for breaking his engagement. Exactly, yes. and he was yeah. engaged to Regine and Regina, Regine, I'm sure uh, how you pronounce her. Yeah, um, I think I think a Danish person would say Regina, but Regina, Regina is right, fine. It's natu- no, it's more natural for an English person to say Regina. But then almost immediately he broke it off, but it, I mean, there's the quality of that breaking off it's not like he just had second thoughts is it it's something much more profound no, than no. that it was a, it was something very complex so he wasn't he knew regina for like three years before they got engaged and then they were engaged for a year so you know it's quite a long a long courtship a long relationship in that respect i think the day after he he proposed to her he felt that it was the wrong thing for him but it did still take him a year to actually figure out what to do about that I mean it wasn't a decision that he took lightly but he he felt unable to marry for whatever reason and there's been a lot of speculation about those what those reasons might be um sort of psychological reasons that Kirchhoff was quite secretive about in my biography you describe him maybe cutting out sections of his journal it's what's yes, extraordinary there's a sort yes, of that's right. there's his private thoughts and then his thoughts that are so private that he yes, won't even exactly. keep them in his yeah, journal so he wrote, yeah. I mean, he wrote journal he, he, he wrote journals every day but he had a sense that these journals would probably be read and published after his death so they're not they don't necessarily solely reveal the real Kierkegaard there's still a place where Kierkegaard's trying to craft his image his public image and yes as I say in the book when he when he really when he wrote something that he really wanted to keep private he would cut it out of his journal with a knife and presumably burn it so so yeah so we know that anything we read in his journals is 
you know, to some extent, it's Kirchhoff thinking things through for himself, but but he's also he's also censoring himself at the same time. So yeah, so in a way, it's difficult to to reach a final explanation for why Kirchhoff couldn't marry. And I think actually he himself didn't fully understand why he couldn't marry. And so part of his writings, both his published writings and his journals, were his way of working through this very traumatic experience. Well, fear and trembling is seen often. You know that the Abraham Isaac. Yes, the yes. framework that gives it its yes, story. He, he cast Regina right. as yes, Regina so if, as Isaac and him as Abraham. Is that right? Well, or? maybe. I mean, that's <laughs> that's open to interpretation. So he wrote this book, Fear and Trembling, which is about the biblical story of Abraham being prepared to sacrifice Isaac. He doesn't have to sacrifice him in the end, and. Kirchhoff's Fear and Trembling is, is about this, this story of the sacrifice. And he, he wrote in his journal, he who has explained, Abraham has explained my life. So it's clear that he saw himself somewhere in the story of Abraham. I think he also saw Regina somewhere in that story. But I don't think it's clear exactly how, how the story represents that relationship so one way of reading it is that uh, Regina is is someone who has to be sacrificed for the sake of um, Kirchhoff's relationship to God because he did see his vocation as a writer as a religious vocation and he felt that he couldn't be a writer and married because he knew that his writing would be controversial would put him in the public eye and he felt that it wouldn't be fair to subject a wife to that kind of thing but he also felt that in order to be he was quite idealistic about marriage, actually. He thought that, that that husbands and wives should be completely open with each other, and he felt somehow unable to fully open himself to another person. So so that was part of it as well. So one way of reading Fear and Trembling is to say, oh, yes, well, you know, Regina's in the role of Isaac and Kirchhoff's Abraham, but it could also be the other way around, where he's 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 asking Regina to sacrifice him and to give him up, um, and he did often see his authorship, his writings, as written for her and written to, in some way, help her come to terms with what had happened well, to her. Those are extraordinary little details. I mean, that he kept this cabinet yes. in his house. <laughs> <laughs> yes. tell, tell us about the cabinet. Yes, I, mean, that's... I know. So, so after after he, I, I'm not sure exactly when when this happened, but sometime after he broke the engagement to Regina. He had a cabinet built out of rosewood, a beautiful cabinet that he designed himself and he had it built. And this was apparently because when he was in the process of breaking up with poor Regina, she begged him to let him stay with, let her stay with him and said, look, I won't cause you any trouble. You know, I'll just live in a little cupboard as long as I can just sort of be with you. And so these words of hers about just let me be with you and live in this cupboard sort of somehow materialised into an actual cupboard that Kirchhoff had built, a cabinet that had no shelves. And it gives, you know, it's like an upright coffin or something that, you know, this, this image of this, this cabinet that, that this woman is supposed to be living in. Is it still living in. somewhere? Is it there, is, right. yes. It's in a museum in Copenhagen. <laughs> you can see it. But but um, but what Kirchhoff did was use that cabinet as a kind of reliquary of their relationship. So he he had special editions of each of his books printed. Two each. Um, two of each yeah. book, one for him and one for Regina, and he kept them in the cupboard he also kept you know other things that were sort of uh, reminiscent of their relationship in this cupboard so it was a kind of shrine in a sense and year by year you know the the books and papers in this cupboard mounted until it was it was full so so there is a sense in which his and then you know at the end of his life he dedicated his authorship to to her and he wrote a will leaving everything to her so but she so, refused you know, them though didn't she she, yes. she did she did refuse them I mean, she by this time was married to someone else and it wasn't seen to be a 
appropriate that she should be drawn into this Kierkegaardian web that he she was trying to draw her into. She still have been a bit pissed into. off as well. Well, I mean, so interestingly, um, I don't think she was. I think she had a deep affection for Kierkegaard. Um, she was happily married uh, after the engagement. She had a long marriage to um, someone who actually became the governor of the Danish West Indies. But he died before she did, and after her husband died. Um, Regina gave a couple of interviews where she talked about her relationship with Kierkegaard, who by this time was was very famous, and she shows a great deal of affection for him. So it wasn't just one-sided. He kept thinking about her throughout his quite short life, but she also kept thinking about him through her very long life. So there was something between them that was very profound, I think. And this whole amazing authorship that he wrote is, I mean, it's philosophically very interesting. It's not all about a broken engagement, but somehow Regina's kind of in the mix with all that. And, and, and he saw his his writings as a kind of monument to her and the, the, the cabinet kind of in a sense, represents that in a very in a very material, very visible kind of way. There's also one of the... I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the engagement, which I found psychologically fascinating, I think it's either or, isn't it, that he, he writes a sort of polyphonic piece where one of the voices is this really horrible sort of Lovelace, Rochester, seducer character yes, yes. who's deeply manipulative. And yes, how horrible, do you read that? Yeah. Because as you say, it's hard to say, is that a mm. him mm. reproaching himself or him imagining a version of himself to try and make Regina yeah. think, actually, yeah. he was horrible, I don't want anything to do with well, him? Well, yeah, so his, you know. his explanation for that was that he was trying to make it easier for Regina. He was trying to make her fall out of love with him by presenting himself as a heartless uh, seducer so that she would think she was just sort of better off without him and that she'd been deceived. Kicker was really, yeah, this this awful character. So he saw himself, in a sense, as sacrificing his reputation to help her to get over this very devastating, heartbreaking breakup. Um, however, I, I think there's more to it than that. And I think that one of the things that Kicker is quite keen to do in either or, is to cultivate a kind of virile image of himself because the way his engagement, his breaking the engagement was often interpreted by other people was that he was somehow not up to it, that he was somehow unmanly. And of course, you know, in the 19th century, there are very, very strong ideas about what, what, what men should be like and what women should be like, even perhaps even more than we still have today. So there was an ideal of masculinity that I think Kierkegaard was seen as falling short of. And so this character of the the Byronic seducer, who is perhaps, you know, seen... On, on the one hand, it's maybe a way of Kierkegaard kind of undermining his reputation for Regina's sake, but perhaps it's also a way for him to try and build up his reputation and to say, oh, you know, it's not because I, I couldn't marry or I was, I was somehow unmanly, which is the interpretation of the people putting on it, but rather trying to prove his his manliness. So there's a lot of... I mean, there's, the, you, you could engage in endless He's speculation it, he is you, and, you know, and in a way I've held back quite a lot in the book I've tried to just present to the reader the material hopefully in a way that's kind of uh, makes a good story but in a sense I've I've left it to the reader to kind of think about some of these questions and I've not tried to impose too much my own interpretation of of this of all well this. I mean maybe that's for another book but the I mean I was intrigued by that that interpretation particularly because it seems there seems to be a theme that runs through the book of Kierkegaard on the one hand, you know, having this contemptuous Monday thing, but on the other, kind of minding quite a lot, 
you know, not being able to escape from his sort of yes. bourgeois Copenhagen. So yes. it's minding what people thought of him. You know, yes. why publish if you're so yes. interior? And- yes. No, he, he minded enormously what people thought of him. But that's one of the things that, um, I mean, you could say, oh, he's hypocritical because he's sort of pretending not to mind, but actually he really minds. But I think that's a very, very human thing to do. I think we all do that a bit. We sort of pretend not to mind as much as we do often as a, as a way of, you know, keeping our cool or trying to defend ourselves. But I think it's part of the human condition that we 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 care about what other people think of us. And we're very we're very conscious of the fact that other people are perceiving us Um, I mean that's another big theme of the book is that being in the world isn't just about our own relationship to the world it's also about being conspicuous and being open to view and that's what being in the world means for a human being as well we're we're kind of on stage I mean Shakespeare says all the world's a stage and it's that idea of of being on show and being quite conscious of the judgments of other people and Kirchhoff was incredibly conscious of all this and he was in a way that I think is very human comes later on yes yeah so he was in his in his uh, sort of mid thirties. He was um, parodied by a satirical weekly paper called the Corsair, um, a bit like Private Eye or something like that. And they ran a series of quite cruel cartoons and sketches, sort of written sketches that showed Kirchhoff's physical infirmity. So he was slightly had a had a, a twisted spine and he had very sort of thin legs and you know so he was physically a bit sort of odd looking and he wore slightly weird clothes as well. Um, but it also made fun of his apparently very aloof and arrogant attitude towards his reading public and and yeah so that that was an experience where he was very literally he was the 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 image of him was was literally presented um to the world in a certain way and he was very upset and very very hurt by this and he spent a lot of time protesting he wasn't but what what, what kicked that off slightly was that he was initially praised in the Corsair and he was sort of annoyed to have praise from someone that you consider so low while at the same time he wrote mm. um i think the professor of philosophy was called high oh, heiberg yeah heiberg yeah mm. and, and bishop mm. Myrtle, mm. Uh, what's it called Munster, Minster. Bishop Munster, yeah. you know there are these two mm. great you know mm. major intellectual figures around yes. him, who he was yes. spending his whole time trying to knock them down but he wrote yes. you know a word of praise from them would be yes. bomb from heaven because they're yes. on my level Yes, exactly. So he was so he was actually again, I think, a very human experience. He was quite disappointed about the fact that his works weren't recognised more than they were, and particularly by these very influential people. So the head of the Danish Church, Bishop Munster, um, Heiberg, who was a kind of literary editor and really kind of the the kind of king of Danish uh, literature. Um, there was another a third person called Professor Martinson, who was a professor of theology. So these three men were in a sense, each of them at the top of the fields that Kiyo himself was working in, you know. And so he desperately wanted to impress them and he wanted them to write glowing reviews of his his writing. And when they either ignored his writings or wrote sort of lukewarm reviews, he was very, very disappointed and upset. And so then when he was praised by, you know, some less important person in the Corsair, he said, oh, you know, this is, this, this is, this is almost, you know, this is nothing to me. And, and so, yeah, I mean, he was, he was a very psychologically complex person. And I think in a, partly he was so proud and so unable to just express his disappointment. He felt he had to conceal it under all these layers of bravado and, and kind of contempt that he he did invite the Corsair's attack on him in some ways. Yeah. Um, this thing of concealment as well. I mean, in the first place, he wrote a fantastic amount. I mean, he yes, had a sort of logaria. Yes, yes, but yeah. also this business of him writing under pseudonyms constantly. How... Do you read that? Is that a sort of way of expressing contradictory points of view 
at one time because he you know he was a very contradictory person or was that a means of concealment or yeah. ventriloquism? What, what? Yes, well, I think that you, you used the word polyphonic earlier, and I think that's a good way to think about Kierkegaard's authorship, is that he, he doesn't just, his books don't just set out philosophical theories, but they dramatise different attitudes to life. And so he invents different characters who hold different views of life and who make different kinds of life choices. And he shows, in a sense, these different life choices interacting and and so so his use of I mean, his pseudonyms are, are character literary characters in a sense they're not just names that he uses so that's part of his literary uh, strategy really but it was actually quite common for people um, in the 19th century to write either anonymously or under pseudonyms so no, we shouldn't make too much of of that. And actually, Kierkegaard wrote some wrote quite a lot under his own name as well. So he wrote these many series of sermon like religious discourses that he he wrote under his own name, as well as these pseudonymous works. So he wasn't just hiding, because he he was prepared to publish under his own name as well. But he it's also true that he really anguished about whether to publish things once he'd written them so he wrote all the time but then found publication quite difficult again because it was putting himself out in the world and submitting himself to public judgment in a way that I think most authors can find a bit terrifying. So he was sort of um, cross when his pseudonyms were outed as well wasn't he or was that a matter of... That's right yes yes yeah so uh, in um, I think 1845 1846 somebody someone sort of wrote that Kirchhoff was actually exposed Kirchhoff as the author of these pseudonymous works which I think was pretty much common knowledge but Kirchhoff was angry that someone else had taken the liberty of doing that because he he was very controlling about his authorship he wanted to be in control of how it was read how it how it was interpreted and who he was as an author in relation to it so he was very cross when someone else took that out of his control so yes his use of pseudonyms like most other things about him is quite complicated so they're partly a literary device but they also have I think roots in Kirchhoff's quite ambivalent relationship with publicity with being visible and being seen in the world putting himself out there. We've talked a bit about Regina there's also I mean I don't know how how Freudian interpretation you want to put on it but his relationship with his parents seems very very interesting Mm, I mean you mentioned at one point that nowhere in his published or unpublished works does he mention his mother yeah which is extraordinary yes 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 it's interesting that she's this sort of cipher in a way and she was extremely um important to Kierkegaard so there's one, one thing I mentioned in the book is how a few weeks after his mother his mother died when he was 21 so he was you know quite young um, he was still a student and he visited the mother of a, a friend of his a few weeks after she died and she, she said that she'd never seen a human being so distressed as Kirchhoff was by the death of his mother. So she was obviously someone who was very important to him and he, he never wrote about her. Whereas his father, by contrast, is quite a notorious figure as a, as a very influential figure on Kirchhoff and Kirchhoff wrote quite a lot in his journals about his father and the fact that his father was quite a frightening and sort of brooding and melancholy figure who in a sense epitomised Kirchhoff's relationship to Christianity. Kirchhoff's father was um, quite a sort of pious, devout Christian and so Kirchhoff was brought up in this this Christianity by his father and in many ways sort of conflated 
Christianity and his father, and he was very well, ambivalent Bishop to Munster both of them. Bishop Munster becomes a kind of father. That's right. So Bishop Munster, who ends up being the leader of the Danish Church, was a, a, a priest whom um, Kirchhoff's father really revered and, and, and respected and went to him for for confession and communion and so on. So so Bishop Munster was someone who Kirchhoff's father had quite a close relationship to. And so, yes, after Kirchhoff's father died, Kirchhoff somehow sort of transferred his very ambivalent and very complicated feelings about his father and the Christianity that his father represented onto this poor Bishop Munster, <laughs> who, you know, was sort of doing his best, really, to um, to do a good job. You know, I think he, he was he was... He was a good teacher, a good sort of representative of the church, but Kirchhoff had a very complicated relationship. Yes, you, you should describe him with sort of you know, approbation, but but semi-faint praise in the context as he was saying, you know, he was this fantastic centrist and he was yes. moderate in absolutely everything. Yes, and, you know, yes was... that's right. Yes, that was his great talent, really, was 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 moderation and diplomacy. And, you know, that's that's a, that's a good quality to have if you're leading a church. Um, but for Kirchhoff, he's a much more extreme character. He's, he's an immoderate kind of thinker. Um, and so he was very frustrated with Bishop Munster's sort of compromising as he saw it, he saw Bishop Munster as compromising the Christian message. Well, he has a line somewhere, I think, I can't remember whether it's of the Danish church, or it might be of, the, of some of the philosophers, that he says it's like a ticket in a, a window, a ticket oh, yes. in a shop window. What's it? Yes. Can you remind me of that? Hell, that's right. Not, but... Yes, exactly, exactly. So that's some metaphor that, actually it's a metaphor that Kirchhoff uses to describe philosophers, as well as being critical of Hegel's philosophy in particular. Behind that... Um, and perhaps more interestingly, is a critique of the institution of academic philosophy. So Kirchhoff was critical of universities um, and academia in a similar way to the way he was critical of the church. He thought that what the church was presenting was a kind of cheapened version of true sort of human spirituality. And he also thought that what the universities were presenting was a cheapened version of wisdom. In the sense that they're sort of commodified and mass-produced. Yes, and yes, exactly. And shallow and, and, and so detached on. Detached from, Yes, yeah. yes. So Kirchhoff compared Socrates very favourably to these sort of modern, as for him, uh, 19th century uh, professional philosophers who earned a living from teaching. And, um, and actually he was, he was diagnosing something that's still very relevant today, which is the commodification of education. I mean, I work in university and, you know, there's a, there's a kind of consumer culture in education just as there is in many other parts of life. And that so was something that was... You might have was, things to say about REF assessments. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, I, that, so that, was, that was something that was really beginning in the 19th century with the growth of the, the modern university. I mean, you know, I work at King's, which was which was founded during Kirchhoff's lifetime, for example. So yes, he was critical of this professionalised, consumerised uh, institution for teaching wisdom, whereas he thought that wisdom wasn't necessarily to be found in textbooks or in lecture theatres, and that again, it was a more existential, what we now recognise as existential in, in many ways due to Kirchhoff. Um, process of examining the human heart and living out philosophical questions through our lives and through the choices we make in our lives. Can I ask also about the form of the book? Because mm. you're approaching a very plural and complex mm. Mm. figure in your, mm. you know, his life, his thought, and you haven't done the straight A to B biography. In fact, in, yes. uh, I think it's one, one of the sections has the dates are, you know, 1848 to 1813. Yes. But you're actually going backwards. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes. Why, why and how did you set about organising your material? So there's, 
actually quite a good reason for that. So so partly I wanted to write a book that as much as possible travelled with Kirchhoff through his life rather than me writing in the 21st century, looking back on Kirchhoff, knowing everything I do about how he ended up being this super famous philosopher, rather to really be with the uncertainty that Kirchhoff himself experienced about whether the work he was doing was on the right lines and whether he was having any impact. Because these were the kinds of anxieties that Kirchhoff had. Had so you, give of, it the, you, you use some quite novelistic techniques, don't you? you yes, present tense. I, a bit, you... yes, yeah. So, but what? So what that meant was that when I talk about Kirchhoff's childhood, I do that through Kirchhoff's own eyes. So in in the late 1840s, when Kirchhoff was in his his mid-30s, he went through a phase of writing a lot about his own childhood and really reflecting on his upbringing. And I wanted to present that material. So I show Kirchhoff looking back on his own life from the 1840s rather than looking back on his life from, from, from my point of view. But I don't begin with his childhood. As you say, that comes on that comes a bit later. So the first part of the book joins Kirchhoff in 1843, which is the year he published Either or and Fear and Trembling and, um, and some other works as well. Um, and this is really the, when he launched his, his authorship. And I think it's a relatively optimistic and hopeful time for him. You know, he's either he's Copenhagen. Yeah, well, he's yeah. travelling from Berlin to Copenhagen. Either or was published a couple of months earlier and it was really successful. Everyone's talking about it. And, you know, he's he's excited. He's excited about his 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 career and, and the books he's still he's he's about to publish to follow either or. So I begin with that and, and that's because I wanted to give people a reason to care about Kirchhoff's childhood. I kind of felt that if I just began at the beginning with Kirchhoff's childhood, then people wouldn't necessarily know why they should be interested in in how this this person's parents and what his childhood was like. Whereas I thought if I began... So there are four chapters that really talk about Kirchhoff as this writer of the books that made him famous, either or in Fear and Trembling, show what his concerns are, talk a bit about the broken engagement as the context for these writings, talk about the, way, the fact that he's doing this new kind of philosophy, he's critiquing academia, talk about who his opponents were, and give some context for who Kirchhoff was and really introduce people to Kirchhoff for a bit. And then um, in part two, to then say, okay, so who is this, who is this person? How did he become this this kind of weird, eccentric, brilliant philosopher who we've just met, and then to kind of give the backstory. And yeah, to do that through his eyes. Um, so the book tries to stay quite close to Kirchhoff's own perspective because, yeah, I wanted to convey the experience, the, the, the inner... I mean, Kirch, so Kirchhoff's philosophy is really about what he called inwardness, the inner drama of being a human being and the, the anxieties and the uncertainty that we feel as we move through life facing an open future. And I wanted to convey some of that experience which is really at the heart of Kirchhoff's philosophy um, in writing about his life and showing Kirchhoff living his life and how that life that he lived ended up being translated into these philosophical books. Yeah, it's obviously unconscionably reductive to ascribe his philosophy to a pathology, say. Yes, but yes. do you think, I mean, he, you know, he did suffer depression throughout his life and anxiety. Mm, mm, do you think mm. he was, to some extent, what we now recognise as mentally ill? And do you think that affected effectively the way yeah. he wrote I mean do you think there's yeah, that aspect um, well, of this? Well I mean in a way I'm re- I'm a bit reluctant to diagnose Kirchhoff but if I was to diagnose him I would probably say he. It's a part of the game we're allowed. Yes that he that probably a manic depressive would be the right way to describe him because he uh, because he was incredibly creative and he'd stay up all night writing he had these astonishing 
bursts of creativity. And so he described the cycle of, of, of writing and production in terms that sound a bit like a... He, a sort of manic depressive like he, he talks about the kind of dark phase of the cycle where he's feeling completely despairing and and then suddenly he's kind of lifted out of himself and he's able to just write without stopping and then he's completely exhausted um so there's this is definitely this kind of cycle of of of, of creativity and, and of production that that you know that um i mean you can you can pathologize that. I mean, I think we probably medicalize and pathologize um, a bit too much nowadays. Um, so, if yeah, if, according to a modern diagnosis, then then that might be fitting. But on the other hand, he's a very create. He's an artist. He's a creative person, and he's turbulent and he's unstable. And I'm not saying that all artists are unstable and turbulent, but actually, it's quite a common feature of of great artists that they do have to suffer for their art. And Kirchhoff or someone who suffered inwardly you know he didn't, he didn't suffer externally because he he actually was quite well off and he inherited a lot of money from his father although his money did run out by the end of his life um so he was he ended up quite poor when he died but yes yeah, so but he suffered a lot for his art and we can we can medicalize that if we want to but there's also perhaps some more sort of romantic uh reading of of that um that we can also keep in mind and yeah i don't know whether it's an overgeneralization but he's sort of out of fashion at the moment, I think. I mean, you might disagree, but can I ask? He is a philosopher whose work is so inward and so rooted in mm. the, his particular experience as a human being, and at the yeah. same time, he's a philosopher who's, you know, profoundly theistic and yes. connected spiritual. Yes, yes. How much can those two things make him a philosopher who, who, mm. or, mm. you know, allow him to be a philosopher who speaks to us now, as, as you know, yeah. a general experience in a secular age? Yes. Well, I think, I mean, I, th- I think very much, very much so. Um, I mean, I teach Kirchhoff to my students at King's and they have very diverse backgrounds. You know, they have come from different religious backgrounds and many of them not at all religious. And um, obviously they're all interested in religion because they're studying, they're choosing to study Kirchhoff with me. But, but yeah, so I know I don't, I, I don't think that um, you have to be religious to read Kirchhoff. I mean, I think, I think people who are, who are actually very, very hostile to religion can, can kind of feel a bit impatient with Kirchhoff because he is he is sort of very um, much caught up in this religious worldview but I think when we step back from that and look at the deep questions that Kirchhoff is asking about how to be a human being and how to be in the world which are the questions I've foregrounded in the book I think those are questions that we can all relate to and really the issue for Kirchhoff in writing about Christianity is about authenticity it's about the difference between being a kind of fake or shallow version of being a Christian and being a true Christian. And that distinction between what's authentic and what's inauthentic is one that we can take into many different kinds of identities that we might be invested in. So, yeah, I think I think that's one way of of um, showing that Kirchhoff is... Um, yeah, he, he he's grappling with a certain identity, but and in a sense, we we all have we're all born into a certain time and place, and we all inherit a certain kind of culture, and we live in a society that has values which we may or may not buy into, and we have to navigate that experience. And Kirchhoff's someone who's who's navigating, you know, a path through his own culture and his own society. Um, we live in a different world, you know, two hundred years later. Um, but I think the existential questions, the questions about how to be human, are similar questions so even though we may not share Kirchhoff's beliefs I mean I don't share Kirchhoff's beliefs at least not fully I think there's something very 
inspirational about his courage in not shying away from the, the full range of human experience, including um, anxiety and despair and suffering, which I think are universal human experiences. That's not to glorify them and say we should be suffering more than we are or anything. It's rather to say, well, yes, you know, we do we do suffer and uh, we can deal with that by trying to run away from it and trying to avoid it and distract ourselves from it, or we can really inquire into it and and and, and sort of go into that experience. <laughs> so that line and works, sort of, I, I think it's not why we suffer. He asked, you put it as you put it, but how we suffer. Yes, yes. So there's a sort of abstract, and uh, within a within a kind of Christian framework, people often pose this question like why do we suffer why would God allow us to suffer if God is you know perfect and omnipotent and so on and that's the sort of theological question that in a way in a sense I see is quite I mean it's it's a live question for people who believe in God but that's actually not the question that Kirchhoff was most concerned with that's a question that's called the problem of evil you know like why would a God allow the world to be full of suffering if you know if God exists whereas I think for Kirchhoff it's more that given that we do suffer how do we live well with that suffering you know what's the right kind of response to it how do we deal with our suffering and for him you know that was a sort of religious spiritual question and I think for many people suffering isn't actually an argument against religious belief it's more like a reason for it you know it's because being human is quite sort of confusing and we're not quite sure why we're here and what we're doing and existentially it's it's quite I think it's quite sort of disorienting just sort of finding yourself as a human being in the world and trying to figure out how you're supposed to live and and for many people religion different religions provide a kind of path through some of those questions they're not supposed to provide easy answers and I think Kirchhoff was very suspicious of any kind of religious teaching that provided easy answers rather he actually thought that, you know, it was a case of really grappling with the difficulty of life and, 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 and that that was where real wisdom could be found by, by, by going into the difficulty rather than trying to stand back from it and avoid it. Claire Carlyle, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that book's podcast. If you did, I very much hope that you'll subscribe to us on your podcast provider and if you liked it especially if you liked it please rate and review it very favorably indeed we also have a special offer we can provide a 20 pound john lewis voucher if you subscribe to 12 issues of the magazine for just 12 pounds so that's practically an eight pound bribe to read the wonderful spectator for 12 weeks running and you just need to go to spectator co uk forward slash voucher 